Good afternoon. It's good to see all of you guys. My name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new to Zoe Community Church, we want to welcome you. We're glad you're here. Uh, hopefully there, aren't, there won't be some people showing up at 2.30 or something like that. Um, I'm tired. I don't know about you. Okay. You know, I forgot, I forgot about doing this, but um, someone reminded me. Last week, I said that we had a new baby, which is true. Okay, I didn't lie about that. Uh, we had a, our third kid, which is our first, he's our first son, Levi, and I was talking about him a little bit, and I kind of made this promise, I guess, that I would bring him this week to show you, um, but he's not here, uh, so uh, does he exist? Uh, so what happened was he got sick. Um, he'd never been sick in his whole life before, so I was surprised, um, but he got sick, and he was congested a little bit, so he stayed home with Christine. Um, but she was like, didn't you say, like, literally last week during, like, before the message that you're going to bring this kid, and now your word is mud. So it kind of is. I'm sorry. I just wanted to apologize in case you're looking for my baby later. He's not here. Um, my word is mud, so you don't have to trust me anymore. Uh, maybe I should preach on uh, the Lord willing passage, you know, from James, because you never know what God's going to do. But anyway, uh, my word is mud, but God's word isn't. You like that transition right there? So if you have your Bibles, let's get into it. Okay, let's just get into it. Go ahead and grab your Bibles. We're continuing our series on the metaphors that the Bible uses for the church. And we talked about why we're doing that. Um, we want to make sure that we have the right foundation when it comes to the church, especially as the church goes forward, as our church is growing a little bit. So today we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 3. And if you've been with us from the beginning of this series, and you know we've been in this chapter before, but there's another metaphor. In fact, there's a two-for-one in the beginning of this chapter that we're going to look at. Now, we've already talked about how the church is a household. That was last week. We talked about how the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth, the body of Christ, a temple, a flock. Today, we're going to get a two-for-one, like I said, and you'll see what I mean in a minute. But let's start with verse 1. 1 Corinthians 3, starting in verse 1. But I, brothers, cannot address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. Verse 9, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. This is the word of God. Will you pray with me? Let's open this time in prayer. Father, we come before you this afternoon, and we simply ask that you would speak through your word. God, we pray that you would honor your son. God, we pray that you would build your church. We pray, Father, that your spirit would help us, God, because we need it. God, we look to you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Have you ever left a review before? Maybe for a restaurant or a mechanic 
or, or maybe a toaster or something you bought online, a product? Have you ever left a review? I'm sure a lot of you have. Maybe most of you have. Some of you might be elite on Google or Yelp or whatever the term is. A lot of us have left reviews. But have you ever been the subject of a review before? Some business owners here have. It's a little different. A few years ago, this guy, this author named Michael Shulman, he wrote a book on Meryl Streep. You don't have to read it or anything, but it did pretty good. It was even a bestseller for a little while on Amazon. Uh, and two-thirds of his ratings were positive, four or five stars, which is pretty, pretty good, right? Most of them. However, when he looked at Amazon and he looked at his author's page and he looked at his book, he didn't think that that was pretty good. He thought only two-thirds thought it was positive. He had been working for years on this book. A lot of people liked it, but apparently one-third of people thought it wasn't that good. Precisely 9% of people thought it was only two stars out of five, and 8% gave it one star. And it wasn't just the ratings, it was the reviews. Someone said it was boring. Another person said it was bland. And you might think, okay, well, at least it's not personal. Someone said, I personally hated it. Now, okay, he wished he was above it. He wished that it didn't bother him. He didn't want to care so much, but he did. It was eating away at him until one day by chance, he clicked on one of the names of his critics and he saw all the other ratings and reviews that this person left. Her name was Kathy and it made him feel a million times better. Because when he clicked on her name and looked at what she reviewed, she had given him two stars, but she had given this tacky polka dot cupcake stand five stars, calling it perfect. And he realized something in that moment. It wasn't that my book was bad. It's that these people have no taste. These people are bad. He's looking at all these critics. He keeps going. These people are weirdos, he thought. One person had left a review on an Amazon gift card. Pretty good. Who does something like that? So problem solved. It's not my book, it's them. It's not me, it's you. But not exactly, because when he clicked on his greatest fans' names, guess what? Someone gave him five stars. They also gave five stars to this bathroom garden gnome for your bathroom. One of his greatest fans was also an Amazon gift card raider himself. So then he realized the problem wasn't with people per se. The problem maybe was with the entire rating review system. Don't hate the player, hate the game. On Amazon, you can buy anything and everything is rated according to the exact same one to five star scale. So you have someone rating a light bulb that works all right. Five stars, because it did exactly what I wanted it to do. And then they go and they rate Casablanca, one of the greatest movies of all time, four stars, because I've seen better. And the question that he came to was, at the end of all of this, on his journey, should everything be rated in the same way? And if you go online, you see that some of the greatest things that humanity has ever produced are rated one to five stars. Someone rated the Great Wall of China One star because, and I quote, too much walking. People rate the Statue of Liberty. People rate Gettysburg, where 23,000 Americans gave their lives in the Civil War. Someone from Florida gave it three stars, and I quote, I guess it's a little moving when you think about freedom and all of that stuff, but really, it's a field. Three stars. Now, let me ask you guys, what do you think about this entire rating system? And for our series that we're going through right now, what do you think about rating things like church? 
Clearly, every church has pros and cons. Like anything else, you can subject a church to cost, benefit analysis. If you go to one, of course you have an experience, and it affects you a certain way. And how are you supposed to share that experience with others, if you liked it or not? And if you've been paying attention to this series, and we're pretty far in this series. Next week is the last week. We've gone over all these different metaphors. If you look at these pictures that the Bible is painting for the church, they look pretty good in the picture. You see what I'm saying? We talk about the church as a family. The church is a place where you can belong. You can be part of something special, something eternal. We talk about the church as a pillar of the truth that stands up for what is right in a world that compromises. We talk about how the church is the very body of Christ himself. It looks amazing in the brochure, but then when it arrives, or rather when we arrive to it, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? that it doesn't look exactly as good as it did in the picture. So what do we do with a church that doesn't always live up to the hype? Or should we say, not even the hype, the biblical ideal. What do we do with a church that has strengths and weaknesses? How are we supposed to approach the church realistically, on the ground, in our own everyday lives? Because you all know this, the church, and especially our church too. I'm not talking about other churches, I'm talking about every church, our church has flaws and imperfections. It's definitely not perfect, not even close. So what do we do? Slap a three-star rating on it and move on to reviewing that dish soap that we're trying out? When you put it that way, when I put it that way, it doesn't quite feel right, doesn't it? See, something happens when we start thinking about church as we do every other product, to be reviewed and rated the line between the sacred and the mundane gets blurred and then starts to disappear altogether. You have people who rate important historical sites, but the spiritually significant ones as well, even reviewing the Church of the Living God and just giving it a couple stars. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying you should never review things anymore. That's fine. Okay, you can even review church. If you left a review for our church, I'm not trying to single you out. Thank you, because I think we have five stars. So appreciate you guys. I mean, for real, I think it's okay to do that. You can give your feedback. It's a way for newcomers to feel, uh, to get a feel for what the church is actually like. That's, that's good even. I'm not talking about stopping that. This isn't a legalistic thing. It's more the bigger picture. What I'm talking about is the danger of starting to think about church as just any other product, as just providing another service, as something that exists for us to consume or critique only. See, Casablanca is not the same as a light bulb. Gettysburg's not just another field, and neither is the church. And here we transition, because the church is a field, though. And that's what we're looking at today. Today, we're going to be looking at maybe the least well-known metaphor for the church in the entire New Testament. Last week, we talked about the church as a family, and that's the most common metaphor in the New Testament. We hear it all the time. People say, good morning, church family at church. When was the last time you heard someone say, what's up, God's field? How are we feeling today? Are we growing? Last week, uh, um, oh, I already said that, but I made a list, okay? So when we started this series, I made a list uh, of all the different metaphors, and I was like, okay, body of Christ, uh, household of God. And I was just going down the entire list. And then I asked James and Eric, did I miss any? Um, I said, of course, we're going to put ecclesia in there, which is the Greek word for church. That will be the first one. And then Eric says, what about field? And I said, just in case, yeah, you know, I was about to say that. Um, just in case someone doesn't know where that is in the Bible, um, what would you say, Eric? 
Um, what are your thoughts? Um, so he's like, 1 Corinthians 3. So today we're talking about the church as God's field. I forgot it at first, but I remember it now. And as we read it, it's not just God's field, but we get two for one. It's God's building. Two images, but the same point. So we're in 1 Corinthians. A quick word on this book. We're dropping down right in the thick of this letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. And if there's one thing you got to know before we kind of get into it properly, it's that the church in Corinth, the Corinthian church, had a lot of issues, a lot of problems. But Paul doesn't write a review or give it one star. Instead, he writes a letter. He steps into the issues. And how he deals with this and what he says, it's really important for us in terms of understanding not just what the church fundamentally is, but how we should realistically deal with the church. Because the church can be hard in reality. So let's get into it. Three headings under which we'll organize our thoughts today. One, ownership. Two, partnership. And then three, craftsmanship. First, ownership. Let's get into it. Ownership. And this first part is about understanding who the church belongs to. Spoiler alert, it's not me and it's not you. Look at verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Now, the emphasis here is clearly on the one word that shows up three times in just this one verse. It's God. And we'll get to that in a minute. But let's make sure, first of all, that we're on the same page when it comes to the pictures that Paul is painting here. A field and a building. First, he says that you are God's field. It's an agricultural image. In Greek, the word is georgion, and it doesn't refer to like, you know, like a grassy field somewhere, like a meadow. It doesn't refer to like an abandoned lot or something like that. It's a word for cultivated land. So think farm. It's farmland. Maybe you've driven through middle America or maybe central California or something, and you've seen all of this vast farmland out there. That's what Paul is talking about. It's a field. Now, this idea of God's people being a field, while it's not common today, it, it wasn't new. Paul didn't make it up. The image of the people of God as a field goes back to how the Old Testament talked about Israel. For example, Isaiah 5-7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. Or Ezekiel 36-9. God says, for behold, I am for you, and I will turn to you, and you shall be tilled and sown. God's people were tilled, they were sown and worked on and planted, and God cultivated them as a field, and they burst forth with life. And Paul says, so is the church of God. And this is the metaphor he's been using throughout this chapter already. We read it earlier. He doesn't bring it up out of nowhere. He brings it up because the Corinthians hadn't been dealing with church correctly. Remember, this is 1 Corinthians. A church with a lot of problems, a letter dealing with those problems, and the first problem that Paul brings up in 1 Corinthians is that the church is having all these divisions, all these factions. The people aren't getting along. They're not unified. And the crazy thing is about these divisions is that they're not because of some charismatic false teachers or, or some bad people, bad actors who are leading some strife. Actually, the leaders of these factions and divisions are named Paul, Apollos, Cephas, that's Peter, and Jesus himself. Now, you might be wondering, what am I saying? Well, these guys, they weren't divided. They didn't start these factions. What happened was something so human on the one hand, but also so silly. The Corinthians had divided themselves up by picking their favorite church leaders to follow. One guy is like, I'm more of a Paul guy. Right? He is the guy who's writing scripture. He started this church. 
Another one of the guys is like, okay, well, I'm actually more of an Apollos guy because Paul left to do some other stuff, but Apollos is actually here and he's a better preacher. And then the third guy who's not self-righteous at all, goes, please guys, I only follow Christ. I don't care about these petty human squabbles like you guys. It was a mess. So look at what Paul says in verse five. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. Yes, Paul and Apollos, they're important. They were instrumental in the Corinthians coming to faith. However, they are just servants. And then look at this, verse six. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. What kind of imagery is this? Agricultural, verse seven. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. So what Paul is saying saying here is, you're thinking about this all wrong. The leaders you idolize are just servants. This is God's farm, and we're just working on it. Now, hold that thought, because verse 9 says, you are God's field, comma, God's building. Without warning, he adds another metaphor. And he goes uh, into this through the rest of the chapter. We'll get there a little later. But he shifts the metaphor from agriculture to architecture. And it might seem like it's really different at first, but really what he's doing is he's hitting the same idea from a different angle. The church is something that is being constructed. So think about this. Okay, what do farming and construction have to do with each other? What do agriculture and architecture have to do with each other? Why these metaphors? Well, Paul is talking about the church as an ongoing project. It's a work in progress. Now, everything we're going to talk about today is going to unfold from this idea. You have problems with the church? Well, the church isn't done yet. But let's focus on what Paul focuses on first, on what Paul emphasizes. It's God's project. It's God's field, God's building. It's God's church. That should change everything about the way that we view this. Think about it like this. Have you ever borrowed something from someone and then accidentally lost it or damaged it or something like that? I remember one time when I was younger, when I was in elementary school, my friend asked me if we could watch their hamster. Um, Where is this going? Have I told you guys this before? I don't know. Maybe I haven't. Um, He said, we're going to go on vacation for a little while. His parents were like, can you ask Jesse and his family to hamster sit? Um, So it's pretty easy, right? Hamsters are low maintenance. Just put some food in there. Make sure the water isn't empty. And then we'll be back in a few days. So we're watching this hamster. And it's going great the first day. But the next day, we're looking in the cage. And uh, Fluffy isn't moving at all. Uh, Maybe he's sleeping, right? Um, But then he doesn't move for 24 hours or so. Uh, We had one job. Okay, but Fluffy's not moving. So my friend's family comes back, and the first thing they ask is, how's Noodle doing? So I guess, I don't know where Fluffy came from. We had the wrong name the whole time. So obviously, we were pretty bad at this job. Um, Honestly, I don't think our friendship was ever quite the same after this, um, which is understandable. Now, I share this shameful story from my past because you guys get it, right? Like, if it was my own hamster, I'd be sad, but I wouldn't feel guilty if the hamster died. How you treat something that doesn't belong to you should be fundamentally different than how you treat something that's yours. Let me say that again. How we treat something that doesn't belong to us should be different than how we treat something that's ours or yours. And how you treat something that belongs to someone else really reflects how you feel about the relationship. 
Now, with the hamster, I promise it was an accident. Okay, we didn't neglect him or anything like that. He was probably sick already. I felt like we were set up maybe. But imagine, okay, imagine if I had done something. If I had let him out of the cage and he had run away or I'd forgotten to put in food or something, that kind of carelessness would have said something about how important my friendship with my friend was. See, if it's not yours, that means certain things are off limits. We get this. We don't repaint the walls in a hotel room because it's not our room. So think about this. The church, who does it belong to? It belongs to God. We say that with our mouths right now. We get it intellectually. But let me ask you this. Why then in church so often are there power struggles over whose vision gets to prevail? It's a cliche now, but why do some churches split over what color to paint the carpets? And maybe it's not the carpets. You don't paint the carpets. What color the carpets should be? Okay, you get what I'm saying. But why do they split over things like this? Or let's get a little bit more uh, uncomfortable since we're already kind of wading into that territory here. How many times have we spoken disparagingly, flippantly, dismissively about a church for whatever reason? I mean, even if the church did have major problems and every church has problems, do we sometimes forget that we're talking about something that belongs to the living God of the universe? Sometimes I think we do. It's so easy to hate on a church that we left, a church that we used to go to. I hear it all the time and sometimes from my own mouth. But don't forget, it's not your old church that you left. Gettysburg wasn't just a field to the men who gave their lives there, to their families, to their descendants now, and to the very fabric of this country. And the church isn't just a field. It's God's field. This is about perspective. It's an entire paradigm shift. For some people, it's never even crossed their minds to think about church as something that actually belongs to someone. They view it as an object that's just on the shelf. I'm going to buy it. It's going to become mine. It's never going to become yours. But you approach it like it's a product, like you're a consumer. Let's look at the pros and cons. Let's look at my preferences. What do I want? Will this look good in my living room, in my life? I like the worship when this guy leads, but when he doesn't, eh. I like the preaching when this pastor preaches, but if he's gone, I'm not even going to go. I like the children's ministry, but there's not a lot of places I can really spread my wings and serve. So I'm not sure if this really fits all of my needs. Look, okay, it's okay to have preferences and to have discernment. Okay, I'm not trying to criticize any of you guys for that or anyone at all for that. But what I'm saying is maybe we need to rethink the entire thing. We've got to rethink all of it. We're not shopping for church. We can't shop for it because it'll never be ours. It's always God's for eternity. So we need to evaluate it differently. It's kind of like this. My friend, he picked up his niece's lovey. You guys know what that is? If you're a younger parent, you know that a lovey is your, your kid's favorite stuffed animal, the one that they need with them all the time. It could be a blanket or something, something that they need to sleep. And he picked it up, and this girl's lovey was the stuffed rabbit. And uh, it was all beat up because she had been taking it around for years. It was all like faded. I think she had like chewed on the ears a little bit when she was like younger. So it was all like chewed up. And she was, he was just like, ew, this is so gross. Like, look at this. Look at the coloring. You got to get something new. And he was just going on and on about how terrible it was. And, you know, he was objectively right. It was pretty gross to look at. Unfortunately, his niece was right there. And she was really upset. I she was like, no. She was all yelling and crying and stuff. And his wife got really mad at him. 
And he learned a good lesson that day. It's not that his objective analysis was wrong. He didn't need to be corrected about that. It's that his objective analysis was inappropriate. Why? Because it wasn't his. That stuff didn't matter to that girl or her love for her stuffed animal. We need to start by letting go of our own standards for what makes a church good or bad. We need to start by letting go of our own agendas for how to make it better, at least at the get-go. We need to start by remembering that this is God's field and that we are servants in it. And this leads to the second idea, partnership. Okay, so we're not owners. That doesn't mean we have no role to play. Okay, people talk about taking ownership of the church. That's not exactly it. I get kind of where the ethos of that idea is coming from, but really we're partners in the church. Look at verse 9 again. What does Paul say? For we are God's fellow workers. Partnership is about our role in this. You know, I read, I don't know where I read this, but I was reading about this business practice that a lot of businesses do now called a pre-mortem. Okay, not a post-mortem. You guys know what that is. A post-mortem is where you take something that's dead and you analyze it to find out why it died. But a pre-mortem, what businesses do is they take something, a product, or even their entire business, their organization, and they pretend that it died, and then they work backwards. If this product were to fail, if our launch were to go haywire, if the organization would go bankrupt, how would that happen? And they would do that to figure out their weaknesses, the potential blind spots that they have. See, it's very objective. It's very critical but a pre-mortem, its intention is constructive. See, okay, when we think about church, I bet you if, we, if I push you a little bit, you could think about all these different ways in which, you know, your old church could have been better. Or Zoe could be better. I know that there are a lot of ways it could be. I know this. I live in this world. But let's think realistically. Let's think realistically. But then, not just stop there. Let's think about how we can help. Paul says, we are God's fellow workers. We are God's fellow workers. We are not shoppers looking at the church to see if we want to buy or not. We're not health inspectors deciding if we should shut it down or not. We are not critics who who stand on the sidelines and point out all the problems with the church as if we were separate from them. The church does have issues, but they are our issues. If you look at the text again, okay, now I try to do most of the textual heavy lifting in the first point, but we got to talk about this, something we got to address, something about this image. It seems to be the case that Paul is making a distinction between those who are God's fellow workers, he says we, he and Apollos, and then those who are God's field, God's building, that's you, the Corinthian church. But remember, whenever we read the Bible, context is what? It's king. Okay, we look at the context. What is Paul talking about here? Here, when he talks about he and Apollos being fellow workers, what is he referring to themselves as? Not exalted leaders that, they sh- that should be worshipped and followed. No, he's talking about them as servants. So Paul's not exalting himself above the Corinthians. We do the work here. We do the ministry. You guys are just the field. You're just dirt, okay? He doesn't say that. He's saying, okay, you're following us. You're saying that we're so great. We're just servants here. He's lowering himself. See, the truth is, we're all workers, and we're all the field. We're all the building. 
we build and we are built. Now, if this is kind of unclear, it's because of the metaphor. I think we pushed it a little beyond where it is. So I want to show you from our scripture reading today, Ephesians 4. Turn there real quick. Ephesians chapter 4. Paul says this in a different way. Ephesians 4. It's a little bit after 1 Corinthians. See, every metaphor breaks down. Okay, they're, they're images and pictures used to help us understand. But of course, they're not everything to what the church is. That's why there's more than one. So I want to show you something else. Ephesians 4, look at verse 11. This is Paul, the same author writing. He said, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. So, okay, he's talking about how God gave certain people to the church. And he does give certain leaders and gifted people and certain offices and positions to the church. It's not like we're all exactly the same. Okay, Paul's not saying that. But look at verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And then skip down to verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Okay, now there's a lot here. We're not going to get into all of this, but... Did you notice what he said about building specifically? Who does the building? Verse 12, it's not just the gifted leaders who do ministry. They help equip the saints so that everyone can do ministry. And then who is built up? Who needs to grow? What does Paul say? You are to grow? No, verse 15, we are to grow. All of us need to grow. So think about it like this. The church is a building that is supposed to build itself. The church is a building that is supposed to build itself. And that's exactly where Paul lands in verse, uh, verse 16. So that the body grows so that it builds itself up in love. It's not that some of us are the workers and some of us are the field or, or the other way around. All of us need to grow and all of us need to receive ministry. You know, in the early days of Grace Community Church, that's John MacArthur's church, Correction, that's God's church where John MacArthur serves. Okay, I almost contradicted myself there, but that's where John, Dr. John MacArthur is. In the early days uh, of his uh, time there, uh, a Christian magazine wrote up an article about grace. Um, and this is before John MacArthur was famous, really. He wasn't that big. The church wasn't as big. It had 900 people at the time. Um, but the article was written about because the church had an unusual level of involvement from the members. And the article said that Grace was the church, quote-unquote, the church of 900 ministers. That's why they did the profile of them, the church that has 900 ministers. 900 people, 900 ministers. Think about that. It's not that everyone was a paid pastor. Not everyone was an elder. Not everyone was officially in leadership. Not everyone served in the same way, but everyone contributed in their own role for the good of the whole. So the question is, what kind of church are we going to be? Let's get to 900, guys. No, that's not the point. Can we be the church of 100 or 150 ministers or however many people are here today? Do we embrace that concept that every single person is supposed to be doing ministry? In some way. See, that's not normal. That's why they wrote an article about it, because it was unusual. 
And even if you ask John MacArthur now, Grace Church isn't like that now. Now that they added, I don't know, 4,000 more people, not every single person views themselves in the same way. So they're working toward that. But can we work toward that? Now, this goes wrong a couple ways, usually. And this is why I think a lot of churches aren't there yet. And this is why maybe it'll be hard for us to get there. So let's just deal with the issues right away. One, the first thing that goes wrong a lot of times is I think people think about ministry as an official thing. They're like, I'm not officially a minister. I didn't go to seminary. I'm not a pastor. I'm not officially in leadership. I'm not as gifted as other people. Maybe you're waiting for someone to ask you to serve. Maybe you don't feel like you have the right experience. Maybe you feel like you're just sitting on the sideline. Maybe you view yourself more as a coach than a player or something. The truth is, God has saved all of us and gifted all of us to play. And that'll look different for different people. If you think about team sports, if you think about football, right, it's not like you have eight quarterbacks on your team, right? You only have one. You have offensive linemen who look different. You have different receivers who catch the ball. You have one who's in the slot. Okay, now I'm probably going a little too detailed here. I lost some people. Come back. I'm I'm not talking about that anymore. Not all of us are called to preach. That's the point. But we're all called to ministry. Not all of us are going to be evangelists, big E. We're supposed to be involved in the work of spreading the gospel. Not all of us are the most eloquent or social or good with kids or quick thinkers. Maybe some of us aren't as naturally friendly or winsome. That's okay. You might not be gifted to serve in every single way, but you're gifted to serve in some way. What did Paul say? The ministry isn't anything specific. The ministry is building up the body. So can you build up people? Is that even kind of on your mind? Okay, I'm here to build up other people. Yes, hopefully I'll be blessed by church, but how can I be a blessing to other people? How can I help the whole? It could be as simple as what Jesus says in Matthew 10. I think it's 42. He says, whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. It could be as simple as thinking about how you can help this one kid who's struggling to get some snacks after service. It's about thinking outside of yourself toward the group. Hebrews 10, 24, it says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. You can see why just watching church online, it's fine, okay? It's good. You can get some of the the musical worship and the sermon. I think that that's better than nothing. But how are you building up people? It doesn't have to be public ministry. You can pray for people. Paul, an apostle. This is what he told the Thessalonian church. He asked them, brothers, pray for us. They're not going to teach him any theology, Right? They, they don't even live near him, so they can't serve him directly, but they can pray. The first thing is, I think sometimes we, we're looking for official ministry. Don't think about it that way. Think about how can you build up the body. Second, some people, I think, and this is where we fail sometimes, sometimes we think we don't need to be built up either. Some people can fall into the rut of living like they don't need other people in church. But how many fields do you know that are vibrant and lush and growing without anyone watering or taking care of it. 
And if we are a field, if we are, there's no getting around this. Paul himself, the apostle, never said anything like, you know, I just find everything I need in my personal relationship with Jesus. Not that that's not true. It's just that he understood that having a personal relationship with Jesus meant all of Jesus, his head as well as his body. Jesus is not a disembodied floating head. To find what you need in Christ also means receiving what he gives through his church. We all need the preaching of the word. We all need the sharpening of fellowship. We all need prayer. We all need to be blessed by the gifts of others. We all need to learn that literally from the beginning, it has always been this way. Even before the fall, it's not good for people to be alone. You need other people. So all this to say the church is a work in progress because all of us are works in progress. And the church is a work in progress that is our responsibility. It's a stewardship. We are partners with God in making it better. I think sometimes we just want to bounce out of church. But God has called us to strap our work boots on. And this leads to the final point. Ownership, it's not ours. Partnership, it is our responsibility. And it is a privilege. He says we are God's fellow workers. That's a pretty crazy thing to think, that God elevates you in that way. But what does this look like on the ground Third, craftsmanship. Craftsmanship. This is about thinking long-term. You know, when I was in seminary, I never... So there was a class on church planting, and I never took it. Um, I don't know why. You think that that would be the one class that I should take, um, but I heard about it. It was taught by our old professor, Dr. Montoya. And I remember my friend took it. And one thing Dr. Montoya said was, you know, when you become a pastor at any church. When you church plant or when you become a new pastor at a church, what you should do is you should build, uh, you should uh, get a house or whatever, um, and then you should plant a tree, a young tree in your yard. And that'll be a reminder okay, as you watch the tree grow and you wait for it to bear fruit that you need to be in it for the long haul, right? And it was a good illustration, but only my friend out of anyone I've ever met from masters took this seriously, and he got a house, he became a pastor, he got a house, and he, he okay, so he planted a tree. Um, but then this other house came on sale, so he left that house and he went to another house. So, I don't know, man, uh, I don't know what that means or how that reflects on his heart. Um, hopefully he never hears that I'm using him as an illustration. But Dr. Montoya, he had a good point. Okay, his point was, it takes time. And if you're going to be a good pastor, if you're going to be a faithful minister, if you're going to be just a part of a church then you're going to need to be in it for the long haul. You're going to need to be in it for the long haul. If you look at verse 9, Paul says, For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field. Then he switches to God's building. And then he says in verse 10, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. Now, keep reading. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. For if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Stop there. Now, Paul is making a slightly different point, but the idea is the same. What he's saying here 
is that it's important how you build. It's important how you build, what you build with, the materials of your ministry are important. At the day of judgment, God will put everything that you've done through the fire and he'll see what's still there, what doesn't get burnt up. Some of us who have done good work will receive a reward. Some who haven't, well, they'll be left with nothing. And he says, even though you'll be saved, your clothes will be a little toasty. Now, this is kind of a hard concept for us to understand. I don't want to get too much into it. That's for another time. But basically, he's not talking about salvation, like you got to do good works to earn it into heaven. What he's talking about is the longevity, the quality of the ministry that you do. He's just being real. He's saying some stuff that you do, it doesn't have an eternal impact. It's not going to last. And you'll feel it in the end. It's not going to affect your personal relationship with God, but you'll see that it wasn't good looking back. You know, I think about this story. Um, When I was in college, I went to this Bible study kind of campus fellowship thing. And there were some volunteers who used to help out. Some older people, like older, they weren't that old, but they were out of college already. And they would give their time to, to serve and to disciple us and stuff. And we were really thankful for them. And I remember, I think it was my fourth year of college, my senior year, one of them was stepping away, or maybe two of them were stepping away to do other ministries. One was becoming a missionary. And uh, some people wanted to, I guess, honor them and thank them. So they sang this song about how, like, you know, you'll go to heaven and all these people will be, like, thanking you for the ministry that you did during your life. And I was thinking about that in terms of this, like, okay, maybe you do have a relationship with God, okay? Maybe you are saved and you are going to heaven. But some of us, because we haven't invested in the things that matter, namely people, we're going to show up to heaven and we're actually not going to know anybody that well. Have you thought about that? You have all eternity to meet people, okay? But you're going to show up and all these people, it's going to be a reunion. It's going to be beautiful. You're going to see people that you ministered to, people who got saved through you by God's grace. Some of us are going to show up as basically strangers. Jesus is going to have to take us around and introduce us to all of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Look, there's a lot to unpack here. But what we need to focus on lastly is, are we thinking about? Are we committed to? Do we care about doing work, doing ministry that will last from now until then. Paul doesn't say what gold ministry is versus straw ministry, but he does say that he and Apollos planted and watered. And in context, this is the ministry of the word. And the ministry of the word is slow ministry. It's slow ministry. Paul and Apollos, though, they weren't worried about the things that so many of us church leaders sometimes worry about. How many people are coming out this year? Did we grow in the past six months? What programs are we putting on? How do we adjust our ministry to fit the times? And not saying those things are wrong or don't matter at all. I'm just saying they were thinking long-term. They were thinking about the quality of the ministry they were doing. Are we really preaching to people's hearts? Are we really bringing the truth of God's eternal word to bear or just our passing thoughts? Do we really care about these people? Because the people, the ecclesia, it's the church is the people. It's not the organization. 
The Corinthian church had so many problems, divisions, false teaching. Some people were suing each other in court. People were gluttonous with communion. There was a guy who was sleeping with his stepmother. Of course, Paul addressed these issues, but he did so by writing an inspired letter to them. It wasn't flashy. It wasn't quick. It wasn't pragmatic, but it's how God builds the church. And Paul didn't give up on this church. So let's bring it full circle and then we'll close. The church has problems. I have issues myself. Um, Of course, I'm a sinner. Community groups, they might not always be the most, the best place, I guess, to find community. Some of our programs, they don't land right, okay? They don't work the right way. Sometimes people let you down. People get hurt in church. We're called to be a part of the solution to all of these things to build up the church to be better, to do ministry. But it takes a lot of time. It takes patience. And it takes a commitment, an unwavering devotion to doing things God's way and not going for the quick fix. We can't rush the process. So don't build for now. We need to build for eternity. And that means investing deeply in relationships that takes time. You can't rush it. You need to show up again and again and again. A lot of times, quality and relationships is correlated with quantity. You can meet up for three hours once a year. That's not as much as just seeing each other day to day. You need to commit yourself to the word. And I feel like this as a church is where we can easily go wrong. We could talk about how we're Bible-centric or scriptural, but if we don't make sure that the word is actually the main thing all the time, then we're going to lose it. And in the end, we might have a lot of flashy uh, stuff to show, but will it survive the fire? See, real ministry is about learning the word, being hearers and doers. It's about the ministry of the word, encouraging with the word. It's about praying the word like we've been doing in community groups. It's about receiving the word. And I preach to myself. And there's so much more we could say here, but build not for now, but for eternity, okay? We're in this for the long haul. We'll close with this. Going back to the reviews, you know, in the same story that I was reading about the author, Michael Schulman, I read about another guy. And this guy, he also had an experience with ratings and reviews. He had been going through a hard time in his life. Uh, He had some work issues, some relationship issues. He found himself getting really depressed. But one of his friends invited him to church. And I don't know if he grew up in church and had fallen away or something, but he hadn't been going to church at all, didn't have a relationship with God at all. But his friend just happened to invite him, and he's like, I got nothing to lose. So he goes to this church, and God uses it, okay? He, he either meets God for the first time, hears the gospel, or he kind of is rekindled, and he rededicates himself. And he falls in love not just with Jesus, but the church. But here's the thing about this particular church. This church is an old congregation, that meets in an old historic building in one of the oldest cities in America. Okay, it's a really nice building. It's just a normal church now. They just do normal church service, same as any church, but they meet in this kind of famous building. And because of this, sometimes tourists come to the church to check out the building, and they want to see a real live Christian service, kind of like it's a zoo or something. So they come in, and sometimes they'll take pictures in the back during service. You know, they'll go in the aisle and they'll like take a picture of the pastor or maybe the choir or just someone singing. 
And sometimes, not only do they tour the church, they leave reviews of their experience. One of them said, don't choose this place if you were expecting the gospel style of sister act. One star. And it really bothered him, okay? Because he loved the church. He was trying to worship God and hear the sermon. And there are these people taking pictures and judging them for not being Whoopi Goldberg enough. They weren't even part of the church. They had no skin in the game. And this is where I'm going to leave us. Because I know, okay, I'm not saying that this is everybody here. There are so many people in this room who love the church, who love our church and have loved the churches you were at before. And if you leave Zoe, I know you will love your next church. You are people who have found a relationship with the living God in the church. And you are committed to this thing, this work in progress that God has started, this field, this building. And I'm not talking about me and Eric and James per se. I'm talking about you guys. It's my job, okay? I have a lot of reasons that I'm doing. I do love the church. But there are some of you who love it purely for the love. But then there are some people in church, and maybe it's none of you guys, but just check your heart, okay? There are people in church. You're not tourists, but you might as well be. It's a harsh thing to say, so just check your own heart. You might as well be tourists with how involved you are, the way that you view church, the way that you stand in the back and merely judge how things are going. See, people who have criticisms, right and wrong, show up. Tourists leave it at that with the criticisms. But church members, fellow workers, partners, they do something about it. See, we're not supposed to be tourists. And though the church isn't perfect with many ways in which we need to grow and change and get better, God has given us each other so that we might together build this thing up to where it should be. It's not going to happen today. It's not going to happen next week. But by the grace of God, we will build something by his strength. God will give the growth that we can look back on in eternity together and be thankful for. Will you pray with me? God, we are so thankful that you are gracious. God, we know that the work is great, that you have called us to be a part of your construction project that is the church, which is your building, which is your temple. God, if it was all up to us, we would never be able to do it. So God, we look to you and your strength. And God, I pray that you would give us the commitment to planting and to watering, to doing the things that we know that you bless. And God, I pray that you will give the growth. And I pray, Father, for our church in particular, God, I pray that you would help us to be a church where every person is a minister. And I pray, God, that we would be able to see fruit 10 times, 20 times, 30 times for your glory, God, and for our good. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.